Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to another edition of Outward, Slate's monthly show about LGBTQ culture, politics, life, and whatever else we fancy, because we as a people are, if nothing else, fancy. I'm Ryan Lauder, I'm an editor at Slate, and if you guys don't hear from me in the next month, it's because my summer crush on the microgreens and mushrooms guy at my <laughs> CSA pickup has really blossomed, and I might have become an urban like co-op farm maiden, and that's kind of my life path, I think, right now, um, <laughs> for the rest of the summer, at least. <laughs> I'm surprised you weren't already on that path. <laughs> uh, I'm Christina Cotarucci, a senior writer at Slate. So great to be back. And I'm Jules Gill-Peterson, feeling hot and humid, uh, but that's just because of the weather. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, actually, uh, you're you're sort of apropos of the introduction I have for the show. Um, This month, we are taking a cue from the sultry, sensual heat of summer that's finally here in July, and we're going to take a look at the venerable queer practice of cruising for sex and for sex work in public space. First, we'll be making eyes at a new essay collection on cruising in parks called, very helpfully, Park Cruising, that explores the pleasures, the politics, and complexities of that gay old pastime. That book's author, Marcus McCann, will join us to discuss. Then we'll head down to Christopher Street with the trans women of The Stroll, a new HBO documentary that's streaming on Max, as they revisit a time when New York's now grossly gentrified meatpacking district was rich with Johns and, more importantly, a unique and affirming form of sisterhood. Kristen Lovell, the director of the film, will be here as well. Finally, we'll have your monthly updates to the gay agenda, but first... It is time, as always, for a round of Prides and Provocations. Uh, Jules, why don't you start us off? Sure. Well, this technically happened right at the end of June, but, you know, on on the last day of Pride... We'll excuse it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, on the last day of Pride, my true love, the Supreme Court of the United States, gave to me (laughs) and all of us uh, a new legal uh, mode of discrimination against uh, LGBT people. Um, you may have may have heard about this this case uh, involving uh, a woman, Lori Smith from Colorado, who designs websites and you know basically brought suit saying that a Colorado non-discrimination law, you know, might force her to design a wedding site for a gay couple. Poor Lori. Um, so the Supreme Court ruled that that you have a First Amendment right to discriminate uh, against gay people, which is really cool. Um, but one of the really, you know, kind of just here we are in 2023 moments about this case is the very boring legal principle of standing, right? Like if you bring a lawsuit, like something has to have happened to you, you have to have been harmed to to sue, right? right? To sue the state or just to, to sue someone else. It's just like a basic principle uh, of law and jurisprudence. And it turns out Lori Smith, the woman who claimed this law could force her to make a gay website, 
had never made a gay website. A gay <laughs> couple had never approached her um, to to make a website like this. And even the person that she like referenced at one point, um, like later had to come up publicly and be like, I'm a heterosexual dude married to a woman. I never oh asked God. for a gay website. Um, but did that matter to the Supreme Court? No. So they invented uh, a new form of, of legal discrimination against gay people out of thin air by ignoring the most fundamental a kind of principle underlying, uh, you know, lawsuits in the first place. So am I provoked or am I provoked? I mean, I'm provoked as an LGBT, but I'm also provoked as someone, um, you know, <clears throat> who likes uh, arcane concepts like standing and is a little <laughs> annoyed when they're completely hollowed out. So anyways, it was just this one of these like, oh, seriously, <sighs> very end of pride, dropped on a Friday kind of nonsense. And mm-hmm. I just, uh, I'm so tired, so tired of it. It also feels like it should be illegal to lie to the Supreme Court yeah, about a gay person asking you to design your we- their website. Also, like, her websites, have you guys seen pictures of them? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they're not very good. It's no surprise that no queer people have asked her to design a website. <laughs> like, uh, no, thank you. We have taste. <laughs> we don't have much, but we have that. Christina, what's yours? Well, um... I'm proud this month, so (gasps) I know. It's really special. It's a good feeling, y'all. You should try it. (laughs) So last month, this actually, I guess, is also related to Pride Month. At the end of Pride Month, in Times Square, that (gasps) hallowed site of queer sexual history, Mm -hmm. Amazon Music uh, bought out this big (laughs) LED billboard, and they were featuring... I think three or four of the queer podcasts that you can find on that platform. You know, they had the little square like podcast tiles. And guess who was one of them? Who? Who, Christina? Us. It was us. (laughs) Uh, We were having like our little Broadway show moment, our Calvin Klein ad moment for one week during June. Uh, Slate did not pay for it. This was a purely um, Amazon Music design situation. Um, And we had no idea what was happening until Slate's PR person sent us a video of it, like the day it went up, um, which was a beautiful surprise to end the month with. And um, I love the art for our show. Um, I believe it was Mm -hmm. Lisa Larson Walker. Yeah, um, it was. Slate's former art director who designed it. And uh, I didn't see it in person. Um, I, you know, don't frequent Times Square. (laughs) But (laughs) it was really cool to see the video and to see that beautiful art so big. And I'm, you know, hoping, wondering uh, if maybe we have some new listeners who yes. <laughs> were walking through Times Square and Googled our podcast. Um, so if that's you, welcome. And send us a little email at outwardpodcast.slate.com because we'd love to get uh, analytics from our ads. <laughs> we're very responsive people. Yeah. Brian, uh, what's going on with you? So I actually have, I guess we all have sort of Pride Month hangover uh, <laughs> things today. I have a similar one. Um, so I'm proud of a provocation, actually, uh, oh, wow. that happened at the New York City Drag March. And just quickly for some background, it's this annual unpermitted march that goes from Tompkins Square Park to Stonewall. It's on the Friday before the official parade. It's sort of organized by radical fairies and sisters of perpetual indulgence and folks like that. It begins rather very famously with a chorus of God is a lesbian and ends with uh, 
everyone singing somewhere over the rainbow mm-hmm. <laughs> um, very sweetly. Uh, and it was started, this is important, uh, back in the 90s, I think 1994, as as resistance to respectability politics, because huh. the main parade then, I think it was Stonewall 25, the anniversary, mm-hmm. um, did not want drag or leather in the parade to be palatable. Oh, wow. They lumped in drag with leather. Yeah. Huh. Uh, and I'm sure other groups as well. That, that's sort of the two big ones you hear about. Um, and so... Gilbert Baker, who was the rainbow flag designer, along with a few other people, um, came up with this idea of the drag march. So it was always meant as a kind of challenge, right, to respectability politics. Uh, and it's remained that way. It's It's been, you know, I've been doing it for years now, and it's always sort of purposefully cheeky and provocative. People are in sort of drag, but it's always, it's very like bad sort of like rad, rad fey drag. It's not exactly like the sort of RuPaul's Drag Race style of drag. Um, there's a lot of nudity. The signs and the chants are very provocative. And this year, one of the old standby chants caused a stir. It is, we're here, we're queer, we're coming for your children. Mm, oh, wow. Great one. Uh, it's been been going on for years. Uh, apparently this year, unsurprisingly, there were some conservative operatives if I can use that word maybe too grandly for them, on the street trying to c- catch something like this because it was uh, you know, a drag march, right? And so um, they caught it. Uh, it became a Fox News story. There was an outrage cycle, just like you'd expect. Um, some of the organizers got some, some blowback for it. And of course, the whole point of that chant, going back years now, is to make fun of the groomer thing, right? It's sort of meant to, to take, you know, take the wind out of that, uh, that particular argument by making fun of it. Um, but anyway, this, you know, this caused a bit of a backlash. And my pride is because it would have been easy to tone it down this year, mm. right? And I'm sure some attendees, I know some attendees actually in the march preferred that, were sort of worried about this. But I am definitely on the side of we shouldn't do that, and I'm glad that we didn't. I, I was not at the part of the parade that had this, so I was not able to participate, but um, I'm, I was actually very heartened to hear that it did happen, and I've said it before. Um, you know, our sense of humor about the lies that we're attacked with is, like, really important, and I think, you know, it's great that the, the my fellow drag marchers kept it going. Also proud of the bare-chested Mary Magdalene femme queen who tried to twerk on a cop's motorcycle oh uh, during, during, during the march. But that's for that'll be a different, uh, <laughs> a different uh, episode to talk about that. <laughs> I was at uh, the Dyke March that weekend, and I did see a femme queen twerking on a cop car. I bet it was the same one. <laughs> I bet it was. Actually, she's, yeah, I think it was famous. Mary Magdalene, yeah. Yeah, she's, she's sort of an in, uh, institution, yeah. <laughs> when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. For our first segment this month, we're talking about what happens behind the bushes. What transpires in the woodsy expanses just beyond the beach? What and who goes down in the public bathrooms? Marcus McCann has a new book out that explores the history and the present day of cruising for sex in public parks, particularly in Toronto. 
It's called Park Cruising, What Happens When We Wander Off the Path. This book is really fascinating. It's a study of the policing of public sex, what consent looks like at cruising sites, what cruising was like during the pandemic, and so much more. Marcus writes in the intro to the book that one thing that has made it hard to campaign against police stings that try to sweep up gay men in parks is that, quote, the popular imagination did not have the language to articulate anything resembling a defense of cruising. And this book, I think, in a really nuanced way, offers just that kind of articulation. Marcus is an employment and human rights lawyer and the former managing editor of Extra Magazine. We are delighted to have him with us this month to talk about a few chapters of his book. Marcus, welcome to Outward. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So in your book, you write that for you, the defining characteristic of cruising is its porousness, the way cruisers show deliberate vulnerability towards strangers. I mean, I had never thought about the skills or the attitude toward the world that one might develop specifically through cruising for sex in public places. Can you tell me more about your thoughts on that? Sure. In order to cruise, you have to be attentive to what other people are thinking and feeling. You're reading nonverbal cues and you're making, you're sort of extrapolating what somebody's interests are from that. It requires you to take care and think about, you know, what does this person want? What are their desires? And do they line up with, with, with mine? And, you know, I, like, it's so basic, uh, but I think for a lot of straight people and a lot of cis men, maybe especially, it's a skill that's really underdeveloped. Mm. People aren't taught how to be attentive to other people's um, uh, thinking and feeling, especially when it comes to sex. It's just, it's an important, it's important and it's useful for us, whether we're in the bushes of the bedroom. <laughs> the fact that there are these like social and emotional skills, as you write, that come out through cruising is uh, a really beautiful way to think about, you know, the the good that can come of this. Of course, the sex is another part of it. Can you explain some more of, you know, what the different people that you've met or that or whose stories you've heard uh, get from cruising? Since this book has come out, I've been contacted by people all over the world who are who tell me their stories of cruising, sort of like uh, from hot one-off sexual encounters to people saying, I met my husband on a cruising oh trail, or I met my boyfriend <laughs> of five years that way. People have this idea in their heads of, of cruising in parks as being completely anonymous, cold, mechanical. And it can be those things, and for some people that's part of the pleasure. But for lots of other people, they find a kind of connection. Um, you know, it can be a, a, a solve against loneliness. It can be a, a source of community building. It's no accident that lots of aid service organizations, when they're doing outreach, will go to places where people cruise because it's a place where people are suddenly open in a way that they might not other, otherwise be and often just, you know, sitting around waiting. And so <laughs> uh, open to those kinds of messages. I wonder, uh, just so that listeners who've never been to one of these areas can get sort of a better picture of it. You tell this lovely story about someone you call Tom um, and an encounter that you have with him. Could you just sort of relay that story? So because it's, it's beautifully told and I think it kind of gets at some of these themes that you're talking about. Right. So this is uh, an encounter that happened in a forest behind a garbage dump uh, in, um, in an area kind of near the docks in Toronto. 
And uh, I had been looking for this cruising area. I knew it was there. Uh, I later found out that in like Google Maps, someone has dropped a pin and called it the Frolicking Trails. But at the time, I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so I, I'm just like, eventually just sort of like plunge myself into this forest and I'm wandering around. And, you know, if you wait quietly for a minute or two, suddenly the like men start emerging over uh, over the, the hills and, and from around the corners. And uh, uh, Tom was one of the people that I met. He like sort of offered to show me around. We like, mm-hmm. we played around a little bit. It was too busy for us to engage um, more completely. I'm not sure if it was, because he didn't want to or because he thought I didn't want to. But in the end, he just like took me on this little tour of um of this cruising ground. Among other things, there's this like these tall grasses, like eight or ten feet tall, that people had cut in. It looked like a corn maze. But <laughs> it was somewhere between a corn maze and a bathhouse, I guess. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it it's a it was a lovely afternoon and, and one I won't soon forget. Yeah. I love that. Um, I think, you know, as a fellow Canadian, I'm actually really happy to to read the way that you weave kind of contemporary, um, particularly police, you know, raids and, and projects targeting um, park cruising, in part just because I feel like, you know, sometimes people have this kind of mythological sense that cruising was something that used to happen and doesn't mm-hmm. need to happen or shouldn't happen in a kind of, you know, out gay world. Um, but also, you know, in Canada, just the kind of sanitized sense that everything is taken care of uh, because of, you know, certain laws that have been passed and we don't we don't have these kinds of problems anymore. It's just been like such an alibi um, that a lot of queer movements have had to push against. And so you talk a little bit about, you know, this really important kind of flashpoint, very recent history, uh, something called Project Marie that involved, uh, you know, police operations in the Toronto area. And I wonder if you could just sort of share a little bit um, about what that was. But also, I- I'm just sort of curious to know, it seems like that's also how you got into um, this book project. And, and I sort of would love to hear a little bit about, I don't know, just like I'm always marveled a little when organizers and activists and people who spend a lot of uh, hours doing things are like, and now I have the energy to write a book about it. That's yeah. Amazing. So yeah. Maybe that's just a shop <laughs> question. But but could you tell us a little bit about, um, yeah, the, the community response, the queer community's response and organizing in the face of this particular uh, police operation? Sure, yeah. Project Marie was a plainclothes sting that happened at a suburban park in Toronto in 2016. Over the course of a few weeks, they netted uh, 72 uh, men. Um, they gave them bylaw, largely bylaw tickets, so for um, sexual activity in the park, which is a city of Toronto bylaw, or for trespassing. It was an outrageous misuse of police uh, resources and obviously it was targeting um, a, a community that is underserved and and overpoliced. The community reaction was really lovely to see. It started with disrupting the the police's uh, PR stunt. They were going to have a take back the park day where they were going to do a candlelight vigil in the park and Dozens of queer people showed up with sparklers and chants and uh, uh, banners that that read 
same cop's new PR. Mm. <laughs> I love that. Um, <laughs> And over the course of that winter and into the spring, there was just uh, this outpouring of activism. Um, there was a, um, a Know Your Rights PSA video that was shot to tell park cruisers what to do if they're stopped by police in the future. Um, in the spring, um, a drag performance artist named Makiki um, held a, a ribbon cutting to, to inaugurate the opening of cruising season the next spring. <laughs> I mean, it's it's a joke, right? Because people wow. cruise all year round, yeah. even, even, in, even in Canada in the, in the winter. <laughs> yes, even in Canada in the winter. Godspeed. We're a hearty people. But uh, with a 40-foot pink velvet ribbon and a ribbon mm. cutting that was done by the reigning Mr. Leather Toronto. Ooh, wonderful. Those activities continued for, for several years. The point was really to keep... Uh, reminding our communities that the police, this is an example of the police, of police misbehavior. It's not the whole th story, obviously, um, but it was a, um, helpful for people who thought that the issues with, with um, targeting of queer people and policing, that, that that was a thing of the past. Obviously, it's not. And since then, we've learned that like there there have been hundreds of arrests of people in cruising parks and bathrooms across the country between 20, uh, 2007 and 2017 at least. So it's very contemporary. It's still happening. Um, picking, up, picking up on something that Jules said about this idea that like cruising is over or something from the past that we, we don't need anymore. I was struck by this idea that you introduced that um, in the age of Grindr, and I, th I think that's the sort of the, the subtext of that is right. We have these apps, yeah. so like why would you need to do this? Um, and of course you can use them to cruise, but uh, you, you write that there's um, a sense that the parks can be more accessible and even private. Uh, for sexual mm. contact uh, than when you have like three roommates and are having to, you know, because of the economics of gentrification and certain mm. neighborhoods in the city, you're having to, to live with all of these people. And so actually the park <laughs> ends up being a, a better place to sort of express your sexuality than, than maybe home where it's supposed, mm. supposed to be happening would be. Could you talk a little bit about that sort of economic side of things? For sure. The um, uh, escalating... Uh, residential rents aided by in inaction from governments to control um, to control it or to provide um, affordable housing has resulted in situations where people are living on top of each other where three people are living in a one bedroom plus den kind of situation and the, it really puts the lie to the idea that there are these sort of private spaces where people can go to and engage in sexual activity that also goes for people who are from families where it's customary to live with your bio family until you get married for example um, and other people who have living situations that aren't conducive to um uh, to that kind of frankness that would be required to negotiate sexual uh, activities at your place of residence. I, I think that there's like um, this conversation of like, why do we need the parks is a conversation that, um, that straight people need to have to understand this. But here, like among friends, we can also say um, the flip side, which is like, what, uh, why is it that the pleasure that comes from sexual activity in the parks isn't enough to justify it? Mm. Why do we have to say right. we need it as opposed to just yeah. it's part of our sexual ecosystem, it's a fun and pleasurable thing to do, it's not hurting anybody, and so 
you know, surely pleasure isn't such a small or unimportant thing that we can't account for it when we're thinking about about this activity and, and what we should be doing about it. I had a question that kind of flows from that, I think. Um, there's a moment that I'm just still chewing on that I really loved where you say that um, appreciating park cruising requires that we see it to some degree through an anti-majoritarian lens. Perhaps the way in which cruising most closely parallels democracy is in how it has so rarely included women. And I was like, oh, Marcus, (laughs) all right. Um, Spicy. You know. And, and I just kind of, I just wanted to invite you to to share with us where you're at, like reflecting on all of that. Yeah. So first of all, queer women cruise everywhere. For sure. Did not want to imply otherwise. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but are less likely to cruise in parks. And I, I think it's for the reason that you just gave, which is that the sort of social construction of space is being male dominated. But I, I would also say that historically street cruising has been a space where, um, uh, gay men, hustlers, trans women, ha- and uh, and also other sex workers have. Um, it's been like sort of a historically um, fuzzy categories, where especially before the 1980s, people who were engaged in in cruising and paid sex work were doing it sometimes one, sometimes the other, sometimes in the course of the same evening. Mm-hmm. And the same, that the sort of categories of, of queens and trans people and so on were not as well defined if you go back 60 years or more. And they were happening in the same spaces, right? That it was spaces of both commerce and sociality and that um, uh, they were coexisting. And I, I, I think there's something good about the, f- the fact that we are now better at talking about and categorizing um, activities and people and, 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 but there's also something that's lost when, uh, when we pull apart these categories so that now cruising refers to strictly non-commercial activity and gay men's space and trans space are, are thought of as, as very distinct and clearly delineated when historically they're obviously not. Oh, I love that. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have. Um, Marcus McCann's book, again, is called Park Cruising, What Happens When We Wander Off the Path. I encourage all of our listeners to wander into this book. (laughs) Do you guys like that? Um, Marcus, thank you so much for chatting with us. Oh, what a treat. Premiering at the Sundance Film Festival earlier this year and debuting on HBO a few weeks ago, The Stroll is a masterpiece of a new documentary by filmmakers Kristen Lavelle and Zachary Drucker. Named after the stretch of 14th Street in New York City's meatpacking district, where for decades trans women did sex work and built enduring bonds with each other in the face of structural neglect, police violence, and successive waves of gentrification, The Stroll does something I've never quite seen before, something that I'm still kind of processing. As the director and our guide to the streets, Lavelle takes the reins of storytelling away from the long history of voyeuristic documentaries about trans sex workers and invites some of the women she knew back in the day, before The Stroll was policed and priced out of existence, to come back to the present-day meatpacking district with her. 
I was determined to make a film about the stroll. I wanted to know the history of how long trans women had been coming into the area and for how long sex work has been a part of our story. We were pushed out of the neighborhood years ago, and now you don't see us here anymore. My mission was to tell this story before we're gone. I felt that I could get it right if I was the one to tell it. They walk the streets together, reminiscing, mourning, and confronting the legacy of all that Black and Brown trans women in particular have done, but mostly without credit. Done for each other, for New York City, and for the whole ass gay movement. And I think along the way, they glimpse for us the real power that's unleashed when trans women of color and sex workers team up for a transformative change. Oh, and I, did I mention that they all look fine as hell while they're doing all of that? Because that's also very true. Um, the Stroll is not just essential viewing. It's really unlike any film you've probably ever seen. And we're so honored to get to speak to director and filmmaker Kristen Lavelle about it today. Kristen, welcome to Outward. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I love that intro. It was, that was an epic intro. Oh, wow. It's an epic <laughs> film. I mean, I, I, I'm still like, I feel like I'm still in the middle of processing my reactions to it. So grateful to have you. Um, you know, you kind of opened the film by talking about, in part, what led you to, to this project that you had appeared, you know, in documentaries before as a subject and kind of felt like you needed to take that storytelling power back for yourself. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about that and, and sort of how did that lead you to this particular project, to what became eventually this film? When I was, you know, younger, they were interested in the plight of homeless trans youth. I would agree because for one, I was trying to just by any means necessary figure out how to get off of the stroll. It wasn't where I wanted to be all the time, you know, it wasn't the dream I had when coming into New York City. You know, I played with it a little bit. I was in a couple of them, actually. There was one, I just remember the name of the other one. I was shown in it briefly. But when when Queer Street came about, you know, and we were at Sylvia's place, I don't know, I just felt it was a need to highlight what was going on. Like, I I knew that there was more to this world than what, was, what 14th Street was offering. And so I took a leap of faith and I, you know, was having Samantha Box follow me with their camera. And um, then I was approached for Queer Streets and I agreed because the, the young people were like, oh my God, Kristen has more experience out here. Mm. You should talk to her, you know? And I was really trying to clean up and, and I, I didn't even know if I was going to make it, but mm. I knew that I was going to, you know, work, get off the stroll, you know, and have this totally different life that I fought so hard for. I did. I ended up working at Sylvia's place and I stayed there for 10 years. And I've seen a lot coming in and out of those doors. And, you know, when I wanted to take some space from me, I began to pursue filmmaking. Just being in that space and having the years of experience that I had working on a stroll and then having the young people come in and seeing their experience, I've witnessed all of the generations that I lived through, you know what I mean, in this area and the impact it had on them. 
it was important to, to tell the story as a whole and try to figure out how long, you know, our community had to endure decades of sex work in this area as the only means of survival. Yeah, yeah I love the way that you... I mean, there are just these moments interspersed throughout the film where you're, you know, like in your studio working on um, archival footage or looking through newspapers. And, you know, I mean, I'm a professional historian and I work on trans history and I was like, oh, my God, Kristen is like the (laughs) ultimate historian doing all of this work and collecting all of these stories, but also doing that hard background labor and also like going to the kinds of sources that I can imagine are just the most annoying and and like Ah. painful to sit with like going back and you know reading the police centered news coverage about arrests or coverage of murders and you know there's also a really poignant part in the film where you go back to an old RuPaul Mm. uh, short from the 90s but could you tell us a little bit about I've been such a nerd here but about your research process because I was just like blown away I wanted to watch the behind the scenes of you you know kind of like detective researcher yeah same yeah you know when I was a young person you know my family would call me scoop because <laughs> <laughs> I was That's so nosy it was it was like you know the pandemic had hit mm. um I was bookmarking through things throughout the years because that's the type of person I am like you know I carry a note phone like I need like my mm. little S pen and I need to be able to scribble notes and screenshot and cap and bookmark and stuff and I find myself doing that not only with like the trans history and the stroll stuff but with family history and everything mm. I just bookmark it and just so that I have access to it moving forward right mm-hmm. and probably even think nothing of it you know, and I did that with the stroll stuff for for years, you know, or like, you know how there's Google Photos. And so Google Photos will mm. store like a decade of information, you know, and so making sure that I'm like gathering materials as I go along. I wasn't sure at the time that I was going to make the stroll, right? But I was just bookmarking stuff, bookmarking stuff and making note of it. And then um, the Whitney Biennial happened, and I met Matt Wolf, and I was like, you know, I've been collecting this archive, and, you know, we were, it was just a full circle moment, and Matt got back to me and was like, you know, I'm interested in working with you on this film, you know, and I was like, great, you know, but, um, and then we found an archival producer, so that was even more thorough than the stuff that I was finding, you know? And so having Olivia was was amazing to uncover things that I had never even seen before. Mm-hmm. But it, it was a long time coming. It was years and years of just bookmarking and placing things to the side and, and having access to them later or finding new people. Like one of the photographers, I had to spend the day and go through his archive. Hmm. So it was very, very much detective work because there was a lot of things that were missing or very hard to find because I didn't have the access to find them. So Hmm. the archival producer really, really brought us over with some of the material that was found. Hmm. In the stories that you tell in the film and also um, the interviews you do with other women on the stroll, you know, it feels like you share definitely a mix of uh, traumatic memories and memories of, you know, connection, resilience. I'm wondering how did making the film affect 
the way you think about that part of your life at all? I never really had a time to not think about it. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I've been out of Sylvia's place for about several years now, and I've been trying to figure out life since those past several years have passed. So I was always in the trenches of like this stuff. There was my era. There's an era that happened after me. You know what I mean? So I needed to have that that intergenerational feel of we're going through these different decades and we have these very similar shared experience. I was just having a conversation. The story in itself is like things that I have experienced, you know, coming from the mouths of other people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When we talk about the sisterhood, you know, I mean, there were hundreds of girls out there. I can't know everybody, you know what I mean? And so I had to make sure that as authentic as possible. The, the very first girls that were with me when I started transitioning, that was Cashmere and Elizabeth mm-hmm. and a couple of others, you know. Then there were the 14th Street and 9th girls, and that's Nicole, Charisma, and Katrina. You know, so I also went to the different cliques, if you if you want to say <laughs> that, you know. And, you know, to, to highlight that sisterhood, because even though that we weren't all the best of friends, you know, these particular groups of people represent the sisterhood in each play. Can you share some of the ways that, you know, you talk about in the film that people mentored each other, looked out for each other? You talk about folks who, you know, took you under their wing and and you, of course, took several other people under your wing. The stroll mother situation. Yeah, stroll yeah. mothers. Yeah. Uh, I mean, when you first come into New York City as a young person, you don't know what the hell is going on. I'm from Yonkers, so I would come mm-hmm. into the city, but like, you know, to actually live down here and, mm-hmm. you know, and be exposed to that life, you know, you need somebody, you need people to look out for you, right? Because this is New York City in the 90s. And so for me, it was at first the other young people that I was around, and that was Elizabeth and Kashmir, mm-hmm. and there were a group of us LGBT kids, and Heaven and Hell shelter that we had to kind of look out for one another because, you know, the straight kids didn't want us there. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And so, and that plays out when you go into society. So we formed a little band of young people that, and and we ruled. We were getting very, you know, <laughs> we ruled. <laughs> they didn't want us to dress up. They didn't want us to go out. They were really mm-hmm. trying to be really restrictive of us. And we just said, fuck that. You know what I mean? We're going to do what we want to do. Like, I remember when we would get done up and we would try to head it outside and like, well, you can't go out and you can mind your business because, you know, (laughs) that's where we're going. You know, (laughs) it was hard. And then like, you know, trying to find work like during the day when certain members were already exhausted from sex work or whatever. Mm -hmm. And and, then trying to find work, people would laugh at us or think that, you know, like we weren't serious people. You know, I was just, I'm going to tell this story. Like one time it was me and Elizabeth and I was trying to get off the stroll and and trying to work as a trans woman. And I went into this place in the village and, you know, the manager lost his mind and started attacking me and my friend and Wilson Cruz. Wilson Cruz jumped into the fray to break up the fight, which was insane. Wow. This (laughs) was like 20 something years ago, you know? And so, um... 
we had to deal with so much back then, especially when you're just starting your transition. Mm-hmm. The world is terrible to you. I wanted to give our listeners a sense of what this movie looks like because it is really beautifully made. Um, And one of the things that just really uh, struck me was you do this thing a few times where there's kind of like a first person animation where we are put in the position of someone um, who is on the stroll. And so we're sort of walking behind uh, someone through the various scenes that are being described. Can you talk about how that uh, part of the film came together and, and, and why you chose to animate things that way? Because it really is beautiful and, and effective. Definitely knew that I was going to need some animations to kind of like bring us into this world that doesn't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. Zachary had already, Zachary Drucker, my co-director, worked with Awesome and Modest on Lady in the Tale. Uh-huh, uh-huh, right. And I, I loved Lady in the Dale. I thought it was beautiful and amazing. Mm-hmm. And so we started to work with Awesome and Modest. And, you know, we were giving some concepts and some ideas. And even the animation changed in the process of doing the, the stroll and how the stories were being presented, you know? So it was like, like, I love, like, how we had that photo collage and animating the photos. But then you notice that it takes another turn in the animation. And it goes mm. into the superheroes. And they're actually being, like, live yeah, action characters. Yeah. the Wonder Woman stuff. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I thought that was so dope. Yeah, there's something so beautiful about that. And I, I, I also was, you know, I, I don't know, just seeing the archival footage from the late 80s, the early 90s. I was like, damn. Has anyone ever looked that good ever before or since then? I'm sorry, but like the looks, yeah. the outfits, the attitude, the way the girls were strolling um, in that period in particular, it is just mind blowing. <laughs> like I wanted to get out of my seat and just like cheer. Um, there's one or, one or two people who are interviewed from that era who talk about that kind of moment of like coming to the stroll for the first time and actually just like, first of all, seeing you know, beautiful, confident, you know, black trans women owning this part of the city and owning those streets and kind of having, you know, this moment of both just kind of being blown away, but also, you know, having that moment of like, wait, I can do this. I can be a part of this. Um, Could you talk a little bit about that kind of aspect of the importance of the stroll in that period when there was such a deep sense of connectedness and, just kind of the sheer power of that like moment of looking as a fellow, you know, as a fellow trans woman, instead of the kind of point of view of like cops peering out of their car or, you know, or John's, you know, looking through their, their um, car window. The fashion of the seventies, I said it when I first started Mm. to see the images from Ethan. I was like, the girls back then were of a different caliber. Yes. (laughs) Right? They were not dressed like, Pose. They were dressed like business casual. <laughs> I loved the outfits from the seventies. When I went through those images, I was like, "This is this is beautiful." And you know, and then you get to nineties, we get a little you know grunge and trashy. <laughs> mm-hmm. That the effect that that could have, yeah, for a young girl who's new to the city and who likes you know a couple of people talk about walking you know onto Fourteenth Street for the first time and just seeing you know other beautiful black and brown girls out there and just having this moment of like, oh my God, there is something for me. You know, I can be like them. 
it was when we first started getting up. It was like, you know, I was with Cashmere and Elizabeth. We had just taken a mm. hormone shot for the first time and we got up in them, <laughs> you know, and we lived right around the corner from the stroll. We lived on 17th mm. Street. And so we go and spin the block, you know, and I was feeling it. I remember, I'll never forget the day I had on this this short bob blonde wig with this red outfit on and I'm mm. there's something I was like I'm feeling very there's something about Mary <laughs> you know? yes <laughs> and we hit the block or whatever and I remember there was like Chiclet Josie and mm. somebody else and they had on like they were the bad they were the bad girls they had on like you know bikini tops and and, and booty shorts and I was like, oh, and they were like, well, y'all are going to, we're, we're going to dash because there was sort of like a hierarchy of passability back then, hmm. you know? Hmm. And so it was like, sometimes the, the, the older girls or the girls that were deeper in their transition didn't want to hang out with the girls that were hmm. just starting with fear of being spooked, right? But they dropped us off and they're like, you know, oh my God, y'all are going to make so much money, you know? <laughs> And we're like, okay. And so then it started, you know, we started working and stuff. But, you know, before then I was already in the stroll culture. There was the coffee mm. shop that I was working in, but they, you know, back then you would kind of peel. You would, you know, present during the day as, you know, non-binary as much as you could, you know, and um, mm-hmm. and then get up and go. But when I was in the middle of the meatpacking district in that coffee shop, their policy was not to serve the trans woman. But I had, at this point, I had so many trans women friends, of course, I did not listen to the policy. <laughs> you know? And so I kind of got fired from there for allegedly having a party in the middle of the meatpacking district with the trans women. And, you know, I was already feeling the grunt of like presenting non-binary, even presenting as non-binary then was problematic for some, you know, and nobody wanting to hire me or whatever the case may be. So I just joined the rest of my friends on the stroll and, you know, I was already out there and it was an easy way to make money in New York, especially living in that homeless shelter. And then, um, we just carried on from there. But then, you know, deeper in the film, and I say life begins to hit you, we grow older, we move on, you know what I mean? And then, like, the realities of living in New York hit you, you know? And, you know, I lost my apartment because, you know, I'm sex working now, and I'm able to pay the bills, but then I'm getting locked up. That throws me off. Then I'm missing rent or, you know, gone for two weeks at a time, and nobody knows what happened to me. So I got evicted for that. Now I'm back in the street. And so now you're back at square one and you're trying to dig yourself out of the throes of sex work and homelessness, you know? And thankfully I ended up working at Sylvia's place, you know, and then able to pursue my dreams. And if it wasn't for Sylvia's place, if it wasn't for Sylvia Rivera, the two things that I wouldn't have been able to do, you know, is have a job and and a career and be successful to have a home or a place to call home. I mean, Sylvia's placed my home for 10 years and I still go back and visit, you know what I mean? But it had become such a special place to me. 
And so I, I come from that long history of like trans activism and, and that legacy. I got to meet all of like the LGBT leaders of, of your, and, and yeah. so it was an amazing journey. You know, I mean, some things I look at, I'm like, wow, I wish life could have been different. But then I think about it and I was like, I, I wouldn't change a thing. You got to learn from the mm. hard lessons, right? I don't want to spoil the ending, um, yeah. but of the film, let's just say it ends in a really powerful way, pulling us right up to the present day and helping us understand that in New York City and New York State, there's been a long organizing process of trans women and sex workers organizing together, um, achieving some significant victories. And also, I think there's a way you know, the film kind of speaks to this moment and says, you know, a lot of people are fearful at the national level, you know, about anti-trans political violence, and but aren't necessarily counting on the people who know the most uh, about about resisting violence. You know, that's, that's the women that have been out on the stroll. That's these generations of talent and activists that come up through the legacy of Silvia Rivera and other people. And so, yeah, as you're bringing this film out into the world, I mean, what, what do you want, you know, sort of people who aren't a part of this world to take away from it? Um, especially today when I think, I think a lot of people feel kind of helpless, but then it's like, well, yeah, if you're not, if you're not drawing on our strongest talents and not lifting them up and supporting them, then you are kind of helpless, right? Um, well, that's my editorial take, but I'm curious, I'm curious <laughs> yeah. what you think of having brought this film out into the world. I think so. And I think that was part of the argument of starting the show because there was this generational gap that was missing, a piece of history that was missing, that we just jumped into the 21st century and that's trans rights and history right there. And I was like, no, mm. that's so not true. <laughs> we have to tell mm. this story because there is a generational gap that has happened, you know? And so it's like, we j usually how it's presented is we go from like Sylvia Rivera and the trans rights movement boom into the 21st century, even though Sylvia yeah. was here until, you know, in the beginning of the 21st century, you know, we did have to endure. I always say, you know, that it was 50 years since Stonewall, but it was 50 years after that the cops kept fucking with the trans people. Hmm. You know what I mean? That lasted 50 mm -hmm. years, 50 years. You know what I mean? And so it was crazy to me, but like <clears throat> for the young people and, and all the kids that would come through the shelter at certain points, I would always give them a rundown about STAR and the history of the trans rights movement and why we have this rinky-dink shelter in the middle of, of Hell's Kitchen with 16 cots, that it took that just to get this little bit. And what's happening today with all this anti-trans and drag legislation happening, you know, and I get people are scared. They're coming for us and, and stuff, but it's always been that way. That's the whole point of Stonewall. It was because you couldn't wear certain articles of clothing or be up in drags. It was against the law. It was against the law for homosexuals to consume alcohol. So that's why the police would come into the bars and beat up the queens and, and put them mm -hmm. in jail. That was the whole point, you know? And it took Sylvia and Marsha and Stormy and a few others to fight back and resist, resist it because it was wrong, you know? And that's what, that's what sparked the Stonewall riots, right? And so now today, 
you see all this chatter and stuff. And I'm like, well, New York City, we've been through it. We fought for the bathrooms 20 years ago. We've done all of these things. You know what I mean? That is playing out today. And, and luckily, I see the, the the headlines of the federal judges striking them down and vetoing. The, one of the governors in Florida vetoed one of the anti-trans bills. And so you see the progress happening and you see that we can't go backwards. And I think, and I tell young people, y'all have to hold the line, you know, don't, the fear is what they want to see. That's the whole point. They want to give lessons in terror, right? And so um, it's to hold your head up high and, and, and live your life and be you because, you know, there's no law or, you know, anything that's going to stop the person that you are. And as many times as I've been thrown in jail now, you know, I mean, like, what, what worse can you possibly do? Hmm. No, that's, oh, I mean, wow, that's a beautiful place to end. But there's so much more we could talk about. Um, but I'm glad that, you know, that that means we didn't spoil too much of the film because listeners, yeah. like, trust me, you need to go and watch The Stroll today. Okay, it's available through HBO. You can stream it now on Max. Uh, but Kristen, really, thank you again for gracing us uh, with your time, but also with your genius. I'm just so grateful. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed this conversation. All right, that is about all the time we have for this month. But as always, before we go, we will leave you with some monthly updates to your gay agenda. Christina, why don't you start us off this time? So I'm recommending another documentary streaming on Max. I swear this show is not sponsored by it. But um, they've released a film called Rock Hudson, All That Heaven Allows. Ooh. Yeah. Mm. I thought this was a really interesting pairing with The Stroll because, mm. um, and I watched them almost like back to back. There weren't many LGBTs with more privilege than Rock Hudson, and nor were there really cultural milieus more distant mm. than A-list Hollywood and The Stroll. So the world this documentary depicts, Rock Hudson's world, Hollywood a-lister who was, you know, famously closeted and dogged by sort of like gay rumors and married like a beard for a while. Never really came out, but, kind of, but uh, you know, on his deathbed when he uh, had AIDS was sort of when um, it was confirmed that he was gay. But anyway, the world in this documentary is, you know, one of like having money to burn, trim white gay men at lavish pool parties, glad-handing with celebrities and presidents, like he was a friend of Nancy Reagan's. You know, once he contracted HIV, he was able to get into early trials of antiviral meds. He did all this while deeply closeted. The film is worth watching, I think, both for like what it says and also for um, the more critically engaged take that I know our listeners will bring to it. Just to think about like the sadness of what it was like for Rock Hudson to be like scared of being outed his whole life, mm. but also able to live a really great and comfortable and fulfilling life that was super queer because this was also happening before the internet. So he was able to have like pretty open, like, uh, and frequent liaisons with. Uh, young men, like wherever he went, um, and again, was hosting these pool parties that seemed extremely fun. But yeah, it was cool for me to learn more about like how his star came to rise and just how gay everything was back then. Like all of the stars were gay. Mm, yeah. Yeah. 
the film does this like slightly over cute thing of pairing clips from his films with queer subtext with like moments in his life that sort of relate to whatever was happening in the film scene. And so there's just a lot of really great like clips from old movies. But, you know, the last part of the film about that last stretch of his life just gave me a lot to think about in terms of what types of people are able to engender sympathy. Like, I I just kind of was thinking about Elizabeth Taylor and how she came out in support of AIDS research and treatment and gave money. And, you know, it was, I'm sure she was an incredible person, but it's also because she was friends with Rock Hudson and he's the one who was like the most famous person with HIV at the time. And it reminded me of the part of The Stroll where they talk about how Amanda Milan, the black trans sex worker Mm. who was killed at Port Authority, like didn't get the same kind of vigils that Matthew Shepard did. So anyway, yeah, I would encourage our listeners to watch and to bring like a little bit of their own thinking to it um, because, you know, the film is very like admiring of Rock Hudson and stuff. Um, and it's but I think it says a lot more. I think the film can say a lot more than what it explicitly does, if that makes sense. Mm. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to check that out for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right, Jules, what do you have for us this month? Well, you know, I think we all know that actually Pride Month didn't start till July until the Barbie film was released. (laughs) And, you know, for straight people, I guess it was the release of Oppenheimer. Mm. Um, You know, I just, I just, I just wanted to say because Barbie is already kind of a gay movie in like so many dimensions, there's like so much gayness going on and we love But I just wanted to say, I think this actually follows up on a gay agenda item I had maybe like last year. Um, But just just to say, if you're into into the Barbie movie by way of the gay, just a reminder, (laughs) the gayest version of the of the Barbie movie is Hari Neff's version of of the, the Barbie movie. She's one of the actors in the film who is sort of beloved for her for her film and TV work, has kind of just been in everything hot and interesting and fascinating lately. <laughs> um, but I just wanted to say, you know, if you're interested in maybe listening to an interview or two with someone from the film, I highly recommend mm. um, going out and looking for an interview with Hari Def. Could be anywhere on a podcast. Maybe, you know, she was also in a couple of different magazine spreads in related to the film. She's always looking just stunning uh, in, in, in something designer. But uh, she has a great sense of humor, very smart, um, kind of whip smart takes on on Hollywood and on the, the cultural world today. So if you want a little extra special treat to go with your Barbie, I recommend going out and finding whatever Hari Neff uh, interview content you want to find. I love how much of a Hari Neff fangirl you are, Jules. I know. I'm sorry. I just like, <laughs> what can I say? I love, I love the girls. I mean, she's worth it. Yeah, that's she's actually. Worth it. That's helpful because I've been sort of avoiding consuming too much about it ahead of time because exactly. the, the marketing has just been so intense. Yeah, yes. I kind of so now now that I'm you know about to actually see it, I will prepare myself by by reading some of this. That's smart. I love that. <laughs> um, what about you, Brian? Uh, so to continue our um, HBO Max <laughs> um, <laughs> no. sponsorship that is not a sponsorship at all. Uh, they just I know. Should we hold off until they actually send us a check or something <laughs> before uh, they we recommend it in the mail? They they got good pride programming. They've been hitting can, it. Yeah. yeah. What can what can we say? Um, there's another documentary that uh, sort of a concert documentary, actually, if that makes it more uh, more variety, uh, that I really, really have to recommend. Um, it is called um, Taylor Mac's 24 Decade History of Popular Music. Oh, wow. um, and like I said, it is it's streaming on Max. Um, 
So it's kind of hard to describe what this is, but Taylor Mac is a performance artist, um, broadly speaking. They, a drag queen as well. Um, they go, they use the pronoun Judy, so I'm gonna try to use that uh, uh, respectfully in, in my discussion. Um, so this is a 24 hour uh, song cycle that goes from, it's, it's American popular music and it goes from 1776 to 2016. Each decade is represented by an hour of music um, in that time. So, you know, the full thing I think has only been performed once. And that is what this documentary is chronicling is, is the, the time that it was done a full 24 hours. Uh, and Judy also, did all 24 hours like in Ju a row? Yeah, Judy did all wow. 24 hours in a row. Um, I was lucky enough to see the second 12 hours a few years ago before the pandemic. Wow. And even that was incredible. Truly, I, I'm recommending this because honestly, it was the most important queer art experience mm. I've, I've had uh, wow. in, my, in my life. Um, and this documentary does a really good job, I think, or as good as a, a film could do of sort of capturing what's going on. Um, it is a, you know, uh, Judy describes it as a radical fairy ritual theater ritual. Um, there's a lot of audience participation, a lot of really moving things like um, in the World War One segment, uh, all of the boy, all of the men in the audience under a certain age were asked to come up on stage and we were killed. Oh, wow. Um, and I, so I died, like I died as oh. part of the show. Um, but then there's like this beautiful queer prom that happens in the 60s. That's like a you know revisionist kind of history of that moment, and you have to dance with someone of the same gender. Um, it's, so many beautiful things happen, and this this film captures you know a lot of them, as well as the sort of background of of how Judy uh, came to want to do this. It started as sort of like an AIDS uh, art art piece that was sort of talking about how the community. Um, dissolved and reformed through that experience. And so the sort of dissolution that happens to the artists and the audience over the 24 hours is sort of part of that. Um, so yeah, so many beautiful things. I don't really want to spoil it. I, I know it sounds a little strange, but it is a beautiful, beautiful uh, artwork, but then also this documentary is quite well done. It's called Taylor Mac's 24 Decade History of Popular Music. Um, and I cannot recommend it enough, so go check that out after you've watched uh, the other two <laughs> documentaries that we've, that we've prescribed Yeah, y'all better be popping some popcorn this time. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, and with that, uh, it's the end of the show for this month. Uh, as always, please send us feedback and topic ideas and your voice memos. We miss your voice memos. We want to hear what you thought about the show. We want to hear how your pride went, whatever you want to talk about send us a voice memo. You can send those to outwardpodcast at slate.com and we will, we'd love to play some on the show. So please do that. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Slate Outward. Just a reminder that by joining Slate Plus, you would get ad-free podcasts, extra segments of shows like The Waves and Working, and you will never, ever, ever hit a paywall on the Slate site. To learn more about that, go to slate.com slash outwardplus. June Thomas is our producer and the seductive glance in the underbrush of our dreams. <laughs> oh my God. Emily Cherish provided additional production help this month. Thank you, Emily. Um, if you like Outward, please subscribe in your podcast. Uh, tell your friends about it. Tell them we were in Times Square so that, you know, that might make them more likely to think it's important. Uh, rate, rate and review the show. Uh, and uh, yeah, please, please share us around because we would love to have more listeners. Uh, with that, I'm going to say goodbye to my lovely co-host. Bye, Jules. Bye, Brian. And bye, Christina. Bye, you we'll too. We'll see you guys in August. Uh, until then, stay gay. <laughs>